Welcome to Money Stories with LDT. I'm Linda Davis-Taylor, and this is Rebuilding College Futures with Monica Lozano. It's hard for me to imagine how disempowering that must feel. You know, we have every right to have control over our money and to be in in partnership, if, you know, if you are in a partnership, to make those decisions collectively. Today on Money Stories, we're joined by Monica Lozano. Monica wears many notable hats. To start, she's the CEO of College Futures Foundation, an organization creating a clear and open pathway to a college degree for the diverse students of California. Prior to joining College Futures, Monica spent 30 years as editor and publisher of La Pinon, the United States' largest Spanish language newspaper. Today, she brings her business experience into the boardroom and serves as a director of several notable American companies, including Target, Bank of America, and most recently, Apple. Our Money Stories conversation covers a lot of ground. We begin with Monica's stories of family and entrepreneurship, go deep into the intersection of financial literacy and education, and end with Monica's vision for progress. I'm so delighted to welcome to today's Money Stories, Monica Lozano, who is the president and CEO of the College Futures Foundation. This is just one of so many amazing trailblazing things that Monica's done. And Monica, thank you so much for joining us today for this Money Stories conversation. Thrilled to be with you and congratulations on on Money Stories. It's just great what you're doing. Well, thank you. I I know you and I agree that um, any way we can get different experiences from diverse audiences to our listeners, it just gives people different pathways and different things to think about in their own in their own lives. And our particular um, hope is on the notion of financial confidence and competence, particularly for women. And what we've learned in speaking with people is that no matter where our paths take us, and your path includes so many examples of leadership, most of us have had some early experiences with our families that influence us and certainly influence all aspects of our lives and particularly our financial lives. And I know that um, you're a part of a family that founded one of the largest Spanish daily publications in the United States. And then um, our listeners may not know, but I do, that you went on to to lead that business yourself. And so I just wondered to start off with your early family years, were business and personal finance part of the family discussions? I think in in, in two ways I, I could answer the question. Um, as you mentioned, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Um, my, my grandfather, well, all four of my grandparents um, migrated north from Mexico. And my grandfather started a daily newspaper in California in 1926. Wow. Um, yes, almost 100 years ago. And started it um, with a dream and a, and a desire to serve a community and was able to raise just enough money to um, rent a little office, begin printing newspapers every day. And um, it flourished. It flourished for lots of reasons. But um, when my father took over in the mid-1950s, it was still a relatively 
small regional newspaper that served the Mexican population in, in Southern California. And we would watch, I, I was born in, in the mid 1950s and in some ways a traditional Mexican mm -hmm. family. My mother was a stay at home mom. My dad um, got up every day, actually put on a coat and tie mm -hmm. and went to work every single day and um, was able to build that business. And he would come home in the afternoons um, after work and we would all sit down to dinner and um, listen to stories of what occurred in his life mm -hmm. primarily during the course of that day. And, and so this sense of entrepreneurship, of being committed to building not just a business, but opportunity mm -hmm. for the employees that we had, the sense that the employees were actually part of a family that were committed to this mission. And so there was in sort of in the water, mm -hmm. there was this sense of um, entrepreneurship, of, of business growth, of having employees, of what it takes to make payroll, you know, all of those things. And for me as a young girl, like I said, I, I was born in the 1950s and most of your, your listeners won't remember this. Maybe you will, Linda, but- Oh, yes. <laughs> mom, um, my mom would collect SNH green stamps. When oh, you yes. Grocery stores. And you had these books and you pasted the stamps into the book until it was full. And then you could redeem them for anything from appliances to other things. And we would sit with my mom and fill out those, you know, SNH green stamp books and go with her. And we had the sense of um, what it meant to save, um, the value of your money. Um, all of us had chores assigned to us. I was one of three um, siblings at the time, and we all had chores. And every Sunday um, in Spanish, it's called your domingo, which is the Spanish word for, for Sunday. And that's when you would get your allowance. And um, we got our allowance. And I remember the day my mom got us all dressed up in like our little Sunday best. And we went to a bank and we opened up a savings account. And we got a little savings book where, you know, the pennies that you were depositing every Sunday were recorded. Right. And, um, and I remember that just so vividly. And so both, you know, the value of work mm -hmm. and the value of saving um, were very early lessons that, that I learned um, in my life as a young child. Very well said. And I, and I definitely am maybe with you, one of the few who knows about those green stamps and how exciting it was to decide what you were going to get with those green stamps. But you're right, saving and then that, that physical activity. And it's interesting, you got those lessons from both your father and your mother, different aspects of those lessons. So moving a little further along as you were growing up, whether it was high school or or not quite yet being launched, but were there any other milestones that influenced kind of your own finance philosophy past your past what you learned from your parents? I started working early um, in my life and like many, um, you know, summer jobs and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And by the time I was 16, I was working regularly. And what was interesting, Linda, is I was one of three, um, the youngest of of the, of the children, the siblings. And my dad began taking my older brother and sister to work with him every summer. 
And there was this sense that they were being groomed. They were the oh. oldest. And in particular, my brother, um, that the, the business had passed from the father to the son, and it would most likely pass to the next oldest son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would watch them go off with him to the office. And for some reason, Linda, I always said to myself, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it on my own. And I worked different kinds of jobs, all kinds of jobs. Um, I went away to college. I worked my way through college. I worked every, you know, and I went out of state. So it was even more complicated because Mm -hmm. I wasn't paying state tuition. But there was just this desire and almost a need to prove to myself Mm -hmm. that even though our family was part of this amazing legacy and and a business that was now thriving, I had to prove to myself that I could depend on myself to support myself through life. And I wasn't making a lot of money. I was taking almost any job I could to make sure I paid the rent. But it was this personal motivation that really animated me to, um, to go off. And then by the time I did come back, and joined the family business, I was 30 years old. Um, I didn't start there at 18, like Mm -hmm. siblings. I came back as an adult, having demonstrated that if need be, I had those skills and those talents and I was able to, to, like I said, do it on my own. Something that maybe have seemed a little hurtful at the time, not being selected with that group at that time, turned out to help you build your own independent confidence and competence for, for, an, for a later date. Yes, that's correct. And it, it allowed me to, when I joined the business, um, to come in with a sense of purpose. It was a choice that I made. Mm-hmm. I wasn't obligated to do it. I said to myself, it's time. I know what I want to do. I have a vision for it. And um, it allowed me, I think, to be as successful as I was, because it was a very deliberate choice. Doing it for the, doing it really for your own reasons and with your own vision. Right. Building on your family's work, but not replicating it necessarily. And, and depending on that, I, I used mm-hmm. to say I stand on the shoulders of giants, learning to evolve it and to make it more relevant and to and to grow it into something that it wasn't in the past. But what it was in the past was exceptional. And, and I had an opportunity to, to go from there. Was there anything of a financial nature when you got to that business and, you know, you said, okay, I'm, I think I have my vision. Was there anything from a financial standpoint that you wish you had known when you went back or before, as you went back into the family business that struck you when you got into those roles? Sure. And I don't think it's unlike anybody else. And maybe it was more complicated because I was reporting into my brother and, and the sibling dynamic. But I think the first thing is knowing how to value your talent and to negotiate your salary at a level that you think is appropriate. With your brother, no less. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not unlike, um, you know, what women have to do, you know, in, in every career choice that they make. And I didn't know how to value my talent. Mm -hmm. And so I was offered a particular role at a particular salary. It was actually a pay cut from what I was making when I got there. But I wanted to be there so much that um, I said, fine. 
And then it becomes one of those, um, the motivator is prove your worth. Mm-hmm. And so you just work really hard and, um, you know, take on roles and responsibilities that are well beyond the scope of what you were hired to do. The other thing was interesting, Linda, is that um, it was actually the first time I had an opportunity to see a business enterprise in its totality. Mm-hmm. And so um, thinking about, you know, establishing an annual budget, managing, you know, towards certain outcomes, having professional advisors. So the role of your, your CPA, your tax accountant, your, et cetera, all of that for me was completely new. Mm -hmm. I wasn't exposed to that. And so when I think about um, my own journey in terms of financial planning and money management, much of it came out of what I learned in the business world, Mm -hmm. that you have to plan. It's important to have an advisor that you trust. You have to think about the long-term. You know, what I I think about today as I, you know, enter this sort of last phase of my career, I wished I had learned early on to think about not just financial planning, but planning for retirement and the kind of independence, just like I did in my teens and 20s, where I wanted to be independent and financially, you know, able to take it on my own. Um, I wished I had carried that through my entire life because I didn't have, um, I didn't have a view towards what retirement would require and plan accordingly along the way. And um, I think that's one of the things I wished I'd known then. You know, thank you for that, Monica. I have heard that from not just women, but many people being, you know, we're, we get so busy doing our jobs and okay, maybe negotiating our compensation. And, and then we, we have that, we think we understand that phase, what's coming in, what's going out, saving, investing, but it's a big leap to think, what it you know when there's no cash coming in or or a million other things that that need to happen and as for those of our listeners who are women of course at least right now we live longer and almost all of us at some point if if not a lot of our lives will be the the just the, the ones singly responsible for our financial wherewithal that's right and the other thing I, i'll share um and I'm not sure that you and I have talked about this in the past, but um, I divorced when my children were very young. Um, My son was three, my daughter was one. And I became the sole breadwinner for my entire career. I have Mm -hmm. been um, basically the sole breadwinner. Mm -hmm. And so that, that creates a different set of priorities which is, you know, ensuring that my kids are taken care of, finally got an estate planner who helped me like think about, you know, putting all of this together. How do you pass on wealth to the next generation? When is it appropriate to bring them into those decisions? But, um, you know, I'm barely getting to that now. They're in their 30s. But the decisions that you make when you know that um, your kids are entirely dependent on you to keep a roof over their mm-hmm. heads and food on the table. Um, it's 
that becomes the priority. It's not about my retirement. It's about everyday needs of a family. You know, there are um, studies that even today in millennial women, I find this surprising that uh, even among those who responded to a particular survey, 43% of those who report that they are married say that they defer their financial lives to their spouse. And dividing up duties is, is fine and, and helpful. But one of the things I think your message is reinforces to me is we should all always be thinking like we're the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. Whatever the specific you were faced with the reality of for dollars and cents for a very long time, but thinking like we're the breadwinner as we're making those decisions. It's curious what you've just said because um, this notion of being dependent on someone else for decisions as basic as what to buy when, um, it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine how disempowering mm-hmm. that must feel. And um, you know we have every right to have control over our money and to be in, in partnership, if you, know, if you are in a partnership, to make those decisions collectively, but um, to feel like you're completely dependent that, yeah, it's- um, it's, So you've hit on it. That's one of the reasons for these conversations is that so many uh, women say that it is very difficult for different reasons to talk about their personal finances, to talk about money with anyone, whether it's their spouse or, or significant other person or parents even, it's just very hard. So that's why the more we can say, let's share our stories and, and realize that everybody has ups and downs. There's no perfect you know, path without blips that even for those who of course have had so many successes. Let's move on to, to, um, to a little bit more of your current life. I want to really talk and have our listeners learn about that. And in your current role as CEO of College Futures Foundation, of course, you advocate for expanding access to higher education. You work with local communities, always improving opportunities for low-income students and students of color. Do you see any role that this topic we're talking about financial literacy has in achieving that kind of equality? Oh, it is such a fundamental issue in terms of both access, a sense of opportunity, the pathway to completion that students have. So it's a, it's a great question, Lyndon. As you know, more and more, at least in California, which is where our foundation operates, students who are coming into post-secondary are first-generation college going, they're students of color, they're coming from perhaps low-income families. Mm -hmm. And what we have found is that the concept of financial literacy, or in other words, um, notions of affordability Mm -hmm. are um, at the core of decision-making in terms of both students believing that they can go to college Many are put off at what they call, you know, the sticker price right. and the fear of, you know, what the cost is without recognizing that there are actually ways in which you can supplement um, your own earnings to, you know, there are, um, you know, both federal and state programs that provide, you know, grant aid. Um, you don't have to take out loans. A lot of times what we have found is that 
students offer, um, often make a choice to take out student loans when they don't actually need it. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, on average in California, students are graduating with well over $20,000 in, in student debt. And, and for so many students, especially those who are going to a residential college, it's the first time you've left home and you need to think about everything from, you know, paying your rent, paying for your books, paying for food, managing the budget for the first time. So what we're finding is that more and more colleges are actually, there are a number of colleges that make financial literacy um, a mandatory course for all students. Um, and, you know, unfortunately in the state of California, what we're finding is not only are students, you know, graduating with, you know, burdensome debt, but many of them find that they can't complete primarily because this question around affordability, it's at the core of, of what we're doing. And, and we're working very hard to, to think about ways in which structurally we can change the system to provide greater aid to students and families and, um, and also how to help advise mm -hmm. around these issues of financial literacy. The last thing I would say is, well, there's a lot that we can talk about in this, but students are members of families and families are making decisions together. And so the more that we can educate, you know, students about, you know, financial planning or financial literacy for themselves, they take that into the home and it actually mm -hmm. becomes, you know, part of the conversation with their parents, their siblings, their aunts and uncles, and, and by extension, the community. Well, I know you and I um, agree that California is so influential not only because of its own population, but just we're a state that's always been at the forefront of so much change and so many important changes. And of course, college futures in this particular area of education. Are there one or two policies that stand out in your mind that you've worked on, whether it's with the state or just with the foundation that you think are really going to contribute to this notion of improving education? Because You've said in so many talks, education is one of the pathways to socioeconomic stability and progress. Is there one or, are there one or two things? That, I know there's so many, but are one of the, one or two things you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I, it's a it's a great question, and it used to be that we focused on access. Um, that was really primarily where the attention was, making sure that students had access to post secondary and and all of the requirements that that come with that. Now we're actually finding that we're making progress there, that you know, more students of color are completing the requirements, they're able to mm -hmm. get in. It is a question of retention. And retention is, uh, it, it, you know, you, it shouldn't take six years to get through um, to graduation. Students that enter in a community college, and in, in California, we have a, a system that is just quite extraordinary where over 115 community colleges serving over 2 million students, 23 state university campuses. Both of those are the largest in the nation, the largest community college right. system, the largest state system, and then of course, the world-class University of California. And um, students are, are ready, they're much more ready, but when they come on campus, what they find is that it's very complicated to navigate. Mm -hmm. You don't get the kind of advising that you would expect to help you stay on track. 
And you end up taking courses that are either unnecessary or because you can't get into the course that's required. Students are leaving community colleges with you know, way too many credits, um, which means they've spent too much time there. Right. And so our number one focus right now is facilitating the transitions from a community college into a four year and then what's required to, to help them persist um, in, in, in the four year. And there's two really important things that we have heard. One is this notion of belonging, hmm. that, that you actually um, are college material. And that affirmation occurs every single day by somebody telling you, you know, we believe in you, we're gonna keep right. you on track and we're gonna help you succeed. And so this sense of, of advising within a culture that is welcoming is one of the most important things we can do. We do a lot of things on the curriculum side and faculty, but what we're finding is that, um, especially for these students that we were talking about, um, this, this notion of having confidence. When the pandemic first hit and campuses were closing, students were leaving and going home, which meant they just lost their work study. They no longer had income. They were returning to a, a home environment that may not be digitally connected. Mm -hmm. And so all of the stress and the trauma that came with that moment um, was elevated. And so College Futures with other um, philanthropic partners opened up a fund, raised $3 million, and we were able to support students individually with a $500 stipend, $500. And we didn't say what to spend it on. We said, if you need shoes, if you need books, if you need food, spend it on what you think you need. We just got um, the results of surveys that were done with over 20,000 of these students that um, either received money or applied for it. And what we were told through the survey is that the money was important, but it was the notion of somebody believing in you. Wow. It was confidence that they were given that said, you know what, you belong on that in that university setting and this, this $500, this money, um, is a signal of our belief in you. Mm -hmm. and, and we heard that over and over, that um, it, was, it represented hope. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, Linda, the reason I wanted to bring it up here is because we sometimes think that you know, a small amount of money is just that. When in the minds of the recipient, it is actually a demonstration of faith, confidence, and hope. And, and that's the business that we're in and our foundation is to give people hope. Um, and we can use our philanthropic dollars to do that. Well, both as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a business leader now and as an edu educational leader and a philanthropy leader, that is a phenomenally inspiring way to think about money. It's, I certainly agree with it, but it's, it's not the dollars. I mean, we need the dollars, certain amount of dollars. But it's really it's the it's the resource that it provides for other things. That's right. So that that is a great story from the pandemic. I was hoping we might have a few minutes to to share that, and that's a great one. Well, Monica, there's another aspect of your life. We've talked about business. We've talked about college futures, um, and somehow in in your 36 hour days, which I think is the only way you could do everything you do, I know you've had experience at the highest level on a, on a number of corporate boards. And we could talk about that a lot, but I'm interested in a particular aspect of your opinion 
from your corporate board service. And that's with regard to what do you think is the role of corporate leaders in using their tremendous voice and influence for good? I think it is fundamental. You know, this is a moment where we need everybody's voice to stand up for one, a recognition of what are the what are the elements of society that should just not be tolerated? Why do we have this income inequality? Why do we have these equity gaps? Why do we have, you know, moments of racial reckoning like we had last year? Because mm -hmm. we haven't faced the kinds of, um, you know, social conditions that lead to where we are today. And to have business leaders, corporate leaders, stand up and say, you know, many of them, as, as you know, um, Linda, they've signed on to, you know, a statement of purpose that talks about their commitment to stakeholders, not shareholders. And that stakeholders include their own employees, it includes the communities in which they operate, and certainly it includes those shareholders that invested in their company, but they are not number one. On, on all of the boards that I've had an opportunity to serve on, I, I, I think about a couple of things. One, is there alignment with the mission? Do you feel real affinity for the mission of that business? But number two, are the values of the leaders apparent in every decision that's made? And, and I think companies today need to, need to stand up, need to have voice, need to operate with compassion, need to set an example for others. And, um, you know, it can't just be philanthropy in the nonprofit sector and people like yourselves that care. Um, we need real leadership. And, and I think the, the business community um, and the corporate sector in particular need to change the narrative about why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. And it's not just profit and the bottom line there is a real social good that can come out of, um, you know, advancing access to capital, advancing transformational change through technology, um, you know, diversifying our workforce at the very highest level. So I couldn't agree more. I think it, it's absolutely essential. Well, it's, it's, an, it's encouraging that these boards, and I know they're very prestigious, our, re our listeners will be able to learn about you and which ones they are, have chosen you to help carry that voice into yes. their decision-making. I appreciate you saying that. And, and um, I know especially, you know, other Latino, African-American, um, we are underrepresented on corporate boards. Mm -hmm. And so what I say is if you have the opportunity to be at that table, use your voice. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why they invited you into the room and so don't be silent on the issues that are important to you and that you think need to be represented in that boardroom. And, um, you know, luckily so many of the companies today understand how important it is to have diversity in the boardroom and, and the value that you get from that. More and more. And I think that what you just said, I think is the next really important part of the message is that when you do have that opportunity, then use it, use it, use it with confidence. So Monica, maybe just, just one more question. I know that um, you touched on this early. Any particular advice that you have for the women of color who are listening, who might 
be a bit disillusioned right now. You and I have talked, you touched earlier in our conversation on this incredible challenge, particularly of this year and what's what's been the impact in our communities. Any any hope that you see, any words of encouragement that you'd like to share with them? We are coming into a moment where um, there's a recognition of what has been lost by not having us at the table and in the room and making decisions. So you can, you can look at what occurred over the last year and be frozen by the intensity of it, or you can take it as a, a, a moment of opportunity with the sense of urgency to shift the power balance, to shift the narrative, to um, create spaces where we not only belong, but where we're actually leading. And so I, I think, you know, this is a, an, an opportunity where we actually have access, where our voice is um, encouraged, um, where the urgency of the moment has opened up opportunity and to, and to remind ourselves that leadership resides everywhere. It's not a title. Um, regardless of where you are in terms of positionality, we have the opportunity to be leaders um, and to demand change. And um, I would encourage us to, to act with confidence and to, and to find allies, to build allies. Um, you know, I didn't end up here on my own. I had sponsors, I had mentors, I had coaches, I had people who believed in me. Um, surround yourself by those. And, um, and I think we've got a real opportunity ahead. Well, that, that is a hopeful tone. That's an inspiring tone. And if you have that from all the lenses in which you're interacting with the world that we've talked about today, then I think the rest of us can take some of that good, good spirit and go forth. So Monica, thank you for all of this, these inspiring words, sharing every aspect of your life with us. I know our listeners are going to be thrilled and just remind them where they can find out more about you and College Futures. So College Futures um, Foundation is um, in California. You can go to collegefutures.org and um, learn more about what we do here in California. And, and we are part of a, a, a large um, network of both people who are in philanthropy and outside of philanthropy who care about post-secondary education and giving this kind of opportunity to others. So join us. Terrific. Thank you for your leadership, Monica, and for being here today. Thank you, Linda. See you soon. Want more money stories? Check out my Instagram at lindadavistaylor underscore LDT to learn more about our incredible lineup of guests and share your own money story. Until next time.